Section 10 of Rackety Packety House and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tiffany Halla Colonna. Rackety Packety House and Other Stories by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Section 10 Part 1 of Esmeralda. To begin, I am a Frenchman. A teacher of languages, and a poor man. Necessarily a poor man, as the great world would say. Or I should not be a teacher of languages. And my wife a copyist of great pictures, selling her copies at small prices. In our own eyes, it is true, we are not so poor, my Clélie and I. Looking back upon our past, we congratulate ourselves upon our prosperous condition. There was a time when we were poorer than we are now, and were not together, and were, moreover, in London instead of in Paris. These were indeed calamities, to be poor, to teach, to live apart, not even knowing each other. And in England, in England we spent years, we instructed imbeciles of all grades, we were chilled by east winds and tortured by influenza, we vainly strove to conciliate the appalling English. We were discouraged and desolate, but this, thank le bon Dieu, is past. We are united. We have our little apartment, upon the fifth floor, it is true, but still not hopelessly far from the Champs-Élysées. Clélie paints her little pictures, or copies those of some greater artist, and finds sale for them. She is not a great artiste herself, and is charmingly conscious of the fact. At fifteen, she says, I regretted that I was not a genius. At five-and-twenty I rejoice that I made the discovery so early, and so gave myself time to become grateful for the small gifts bestowed upon me. Why should I eat out my heart with envy? Is not it possible that I might be a less clever woman than I am, and a less lucky one? On my part I have my pupils, French pupils who take lessons in English, German, or Italian, English or American pupils, who generally learn French, and, upon the whole, I do not suffer from lack of patrons. It is my habit, when Clélie is at work upon a copy in one of the great galleries, to accompany her to the scene of her labour in the morning, and call for her at noon, and, in accordance with this habit, I made my way to the Louvre at midday upon one occasion three years ago. I found my wife busy at her easel in the Grande Galerie, and when I approached her and laid my hand upon her shoulder, as was my wont, she looked up at me with a smile and spoke to me in a cautious undertone. "'I am glad,' she said, "'that you are not ten minutes later. Look at those extraordinary people!' She still leaned back in her chair and looked up at me, but made, at the same time, one of those indescribable movements of the head which a clever woman can render so significant. This slight gesture directed me at once to the extraordinary people to whom she referred. Are they not truly wonderful? she asked. There were two of them, evidently father and daughter, and they sat side by side upon a seat placed in an archway, and regarded hopelessly one of the finest works in the gallery. The father was a person undersized and elderly, his face was tanned and seamed, as if with years of rough outdoor labour. The effect produced upon him by his clothes was plainly one of actual suffering, both physical and mental. 
His stiff hands refused to meet the efforts of his gloves to fit them. His body shrank from his garments. If he had not been pathetic, he would have been ridiculous. But he was pathetic. It was evident he was not so attired of his own free will, that only a patient nature, inured by long custom to discomfort, sustained him. That he was in the gallery under protest, that he did not understand the paintings, and that they perplexed, overwhelmed him. The daughter is almost impossible to describe, and yet I must attempt to describe her. She had a slender and pretty figure. There were slight marks of the sun on her face also, and, as in her father's case, the richness of her dress was set at defiance by a strong element of incongruousness. She had black hair and grey eyes, and she sat with folded hands staring at the picture before her in dumb uninterestedness. Clélie had taken up her brush again, and was touching up her work here and there. "'They have been here two hours,' she said. "'They are waiting for someone. At first they tried to look about them, as others did. They wandered from seat to seat and sat down, and looked as you see them doing now. What do you think of them? To what nation should you ascribe them?' "'They are not French,' I answered. "'And they are not English.' "'If she were English,' said Clélie, "'the girl would be more conscious of herself, "'and of what we might possibly be saying. "'She is only conscious that she is out of place and miserable. "'She does not care for us at all. "'I have never seen Americans like them before, "'but I am convinced that they are Americans.' "'She laid aside her working materials "'and proceeded to draw on her gloves.' "'We will go and look at that Tentation de Saint-Antoine of Teniers,' she said. "'And we may hear them speak. "'I confess I am devoured by an anxiety to hear them speak.' "'According, a few moments later, an amiable young couple stood before La Tentation, "'regarding it with absorbed and critical glances. "'But the father and daughter did not seem to see us. "'They looked disconsolately about them, or at the picture before which they sat.' Finally, however, we were rewarded by hearing them speak to each other. The father addressed the young lady slowly and deliberately, and with an accent which, but for my long residence in England and familiarity with some forms of its patois, I should find it impossible to transcribe. Esmeralda, he said, your ma's a long time a-coming. Yes, answered the girl, with the same accent, and in a voice wholly listless and melancholy. She's a long time. Clélie favoured me with one of her rapid side-glances. The study of character is her grand passion, and her special weakness is a fancy for the singular and incongruous. I have seen her stand in silence, and regard with positive interest one of her former patronesses, who was overwhelming her with contumelious violence, seeming entirely unconscious of all else but that the woman was of a species novel to her, and therefore worthy of delicate observation. "'It is as I said,' she whispered. "'They are Americans, but of an order entirely new.' Almost the next instant she touched my arm. "'Here is the mother,' she exclaimed. "'She is coming this way. See?' A woman advanced rapidly toward our part of the gallery, a small, angry woman, with an ungraceful figure and a keen brown eye. She began to speak aloud while still several feet distant from the waiting couple. "'Come along,' 
she said. I've found a place at last, though I've been all the morning at it, and the woman who keeps the door speaks English. They call em, remarked the husband, meekly rising. Concierges. I wonder why. The girl rose also, still with her hopeless, abstracted air, and followed the mother, who led the way to the door. Seeing her move forward, my wife uttered an admiring exclamation. "'She is more beautiful than I thought,' she said. "'She holds herself marvellously. She moves with the freedom of some fine, wild creature.' And, as the party disappeared from view, her regret at losing them drew from her a sigh. She disgusted them with characteristic enthusiasm all the way home. She even concocted a very probable little romance. One would always imagine so many things concerning Americans. They were so extraordinary a people. They acquired wealth by such peculiar means. Their country was so immense. Their resources were so remarkable. These persons, for instance, were evidently persons of wealth, and as plainly had risen from the people. The mother was not quite so wholly untaught as the other two, but she was more objectionable. "'One can bear with the large simplicity of utter ignorance,' said my fair philosopher. "'One frequently finds it gentle and unworldly, but the other is odious because it is always aggressive and narrow.' She had taken a strong feminine dislike to Madame la Mère. "'She makes her family miserable,' she said. She drags them from place to place. Possibly there is a lover, more possibly than not. The girl's eyes wore a peculiar look, as if they searched for something far away. She had scarcely concluded her charming little harangue when we reached our destination. But, as we passed through the entrance, she paused to speak to the curly-headed child of the concierge, whose mother held him by the hand. "'We shall have new arrivals to-morrow,' said the good woman, who was always ready for friendly gossip. "'The apartment upon the first floor,' and she nodded to me significantly, and with good-natured encouragement. "'Perhaps you may get pupils,' she added. "'They are Americans, and speak only English, and there is a young lady,' Madame says. "'Americans!' exclaimed Clélie, with sudden interest. "'Americans!' answered the concierge. "'It was Madame who came. Mon Dieu! It was wonderful! So rich! And so, so!' filling up the blank by a shrug of deep meaning. "'It cannot have been long since they were peasants,' her voice dropping into a cautious whisper. "'Why not our friends of the Louvre?' said Clélie as we went on upstairs. "'Why not?' I replied. It is very possible. The next day there arrived at the house numberless trunks of large dimensions, superintended by the small angry woman and a maid. An hour later came a carriage, from whose door emerged the young lady and her father. Both looked pale and fagged. Both were led upstairs in the midst of voluble comments and commands by the mother, and both Entering the apartment seemed swallowed up by it, as we saw and heard nothing further of them. Clélie was indignant. 
"'It is plain that the mother overwhelms them,' she said. "'A girl of that age should speak and be interested in any novelty. "'This one would be if she were not a wretched. "'And the poor little husband!' "'My dear,' I remarked, "'you are a feminine Bayard. "'You engage yourself with such ardour in everybody's wrongs.' "'When I returned from my afternoon's work a few days later,' I found Clélie again excited. She had been summoned to the first floor by Madame. "'I went into the room,' said Clélie, "'and found the mother and daughter together. Mademoiselle, who stood by the fire, had evidently been weeping. Madame was in an abrupt and angry mood. She wasted no words. "'I want you to give her lessons.' she said, making an ungraceful gesture in the direction of her daughter. "'What do you charge a lesson?' And on my telling her, she engaged me at once. "'It's a great deal, but I guess I can pay as well as other people,' she remarked. A few of the lessons were given downstairs, and then Clélie preferred a request to Madame. "'If you will permit, mademoiselle, to come to my room, "'you will confer a favour upon me,' she said. "'Fortunately, her request was granted, "'and so I used afterward to come home "'to find mademoiselle Esmeralda "'in our little salon, at work disconsolately and tremulously. "'She found it difficult to hold her pencil in the correct manner, "'and one morning she let it drop and burst into tears.' "'Don't you see? I'll never do it,' she answered miserably. "'Don't you see I couldn't, even if my heart was in it, and it ain't at all?' She held out her little hands piteously for Clélie to look at. They were well enough shaped, and would have been pretty if they had not been robbed of their useful suppleness by labour. "'I've been used to work,' she said. "'Rough work all my life,' "'and my hands ain't like yours.' "'But you must not be discouraged, mademoiselle,' said Clélie gently. "'Time, time,' interposed the girl, with a frightened look in her pretty grey eyes. "'That's what I can't bear to think of, the time that's to come.' This was the first of many outbursts of confidence. Afterward, she related to Clélie, with the greatest naivete, the whole history of the family affairs. They had been the possessors of some barren mountain lands in North Carolina, and her description of their former life was wonderful indeed to the ears of the Parisienne. She herself had been brought up with marvellous simplicity and hardihood, barely learning to read and write, and in absolute ignorance of society. A year ago, iron had been discovered upon their property, and the result had been wealth and misery for father and daughter. The mother, who had some vague fancies of the attractions of the great outside world, was ambitious and restless. Monsieur, who was a mild and accommodating person, could only give way before her stronger will. "'She always had her way with us,' said Mademoiselle Esmeralda, scratching nervously upon the paper before her with her pencil at this part of the relation." We did not want to leave home, neither me nor father, and father said more than I ever heard him say before at one time. Mother, says he, 
Let me and Esmeralda stay at home, and you go and enjoy your tower. You've had more schooling, and you'll be more at home than we should. You're used to, to city ways, having lived in Lisbethville. But it only vexed her. People in town had been talking to her about traveling and letting me learn things, and she'd set her mind on it. She was very simple and unsophisticated. To the memory of her former truly singular life she clung with unshaken fidelity. She recurred to it constantly. The novel and luxury of her new existence seemed to have no attractions for her. One thing even my Clélie found incomprehensible, while she fancied she understood the rest. She did not appear to be moved to pleasure, even by our beloved Paris. It is a true maladie du pays, Clélie remarked to me. And that is not all. Nor was it all. One day the whole truth was told amid a flood of tears. I... I was going to be married, cried the poor child. I was to have been married the week the ore was found. I was all ready, and mother... mother shut right down on us. Clélie glanced at me in amazed questioning. It is a kind of argot which belongs only to Americans, I answered in an undertone. The alliance was broken off. Ciel! exclaimed my Clélie between her small shut teeth. The woman is a fiend! She was wholly absorbed in her study of this unworldly and untaught nature. She was full of sympathy for its trials and tenderness and for its pain. Even the girl's peculiarities of speech were full of interest to her. She made serious and intelligent efforts to understand them, as if she studied a new language. "'It is not common, Argot,' she said. "'It has its subtleties. One continually finds somewhere an original idea, sometimes even a bon mot, which startles one by its pointedness.' As you say, however, it belongs only to the Americans and their remarkable country. A French mind can only arrive at its climaxes through a grave and occasionally tedious research, which would weary most persons, but which, however, does not weary me. The confidence of Mademoiselle Esmeralda was easily won. She became attached to us both, and particularly to Clélie. When her mother was absent or occupied, she stole upstairs to our apartment and spent with us the moments of leisure chance afforded her. She liked our rooms, she told my wife, because they were small, and our society because we were clever, which we discovered afterward meant amiable. But she was always pale and out of spirits. She would sit before our fire, silent and abstracted. You must not mind if I don't talk she would say. I can't, and it seems to help me to get to sit and think about things. Mother won't let me do it downstairs. We became also familiar with the father. One day I met him upon the staircase, and to my amazement he stopped as if he wished to address me. I raised my hat and bade him good morning. On his part he drew forth a large handkerchief and began to rub the palms of his hands with awkward timidity. Howdy, he said. I confess that at the moment I was covered with confusion. I, who was a teacher of English, and flattered myself that I wrote and spoke it fluently, did not understand. 
Immediately, however, it flashed across my mind that the word was a species of salutation, which I finally discovered to be the case. I bowed again and thanked him, hazarding the reply that my health was excellent, and an inquiry as to the state of madame's. He rubbed his hands still more nervously, and answered me in the slow and deliberate manner I had observed at the Louvre. "'Thank ye,' he said. "'She's doing tolerable well, his mother, as well as common, and she's uh, enjoying herself, too. I wish we was all—' But there he checked himself, and glanced hastily about him. Then he began again. "'Esmeraldi,' he said. Esmeralda thinks a heap on you. She takes a side of comfort out of Miss De. I can't call your name, but I mean your wife. Madame de Mar, I replied, is rejoiced indeed to have won the friendship of Mademoiselle. Yes, he proceeded. She takes a side of comfort in you and all, and she needs comfort, does Esmeralda. There ensued a slight pause which somewhat embarrassed me, for at every pause he regarded me with an air of meek and hesitant appeal. "'She's a little down-spirited, is Esmeralda,' he said, and, adding this suddenly in a subdued and fearful tone, "'So am I.' Having said this, he seemed to feel that he had overstepped a barrier— he seized the lapel of my coat and held me prisoner, pouring forth his confessions with a faith in my interest by which I was at once amazed and touched. "'You see, it's this way,' he said. "'It's this way, mister. We're home folks, me and Esmeraldi, and we're a long way from home, and it sort of seems like we didn't get no use to, to it than we was at first. We're not like mother. Mother, she was raised in a town. She was raised in Lisbethville.' "'and she's always took to town ways. "'But me and Esmeraldi, we was raised in the mountains, "'right under the shadow of Old Bald, "'and town goes hard with us. "'Seems like we're always a-thinkin' in North Carolina. "'And mother, she gets outed, which is likely. "'She says we ought to fit ourselves for a higher pair, "'and I dare say we'd ought. "'But you see, it goes sort of hard with us. "'And Esmeraldi, she has her trouble, "'and I can't help a sympathizing with her.' "'for young folks will be young folks, "'and I was young folks once myself. "'Once, once I sought a heap of store by mother. "'So you see how it is.' "'It is very sad, monsieur,' I answered with gravity. "'Singular as it may appear, "'this was not so laughable to me as it might seem. "'It was so apparent that he did not anticipate ridicule, "'and my Clélie's interest in these people "'also rendered them sacred in my eyes.' "'Yes,' he returned. "'That's so, and sometimes it's worse than you'd think when mother's outed, "'and that's why I'm glad as Miss Dymar and Esmeraldi is such friends.' "'It struck me at this moment that he had some request to make of me. "'He grasped the lapel of my coat somewhat more tightly, "'as if requiring additional support, "'and finally bent forward and addressed me with caution.' "'Do you think as Miss Dymar would mind it "'if and now and then I was to step in for Esmeraldi "'and said a little, just in a kind of neighbouring way, "'Esmeraldi, she says, you're so sociable, "'and I hain't been sociable with no one for, for a right smart spell, "'and it seems like I kind of hanker arter it, 
you've no idea, mister, how lonesome a man can get when he hankers to be sociable and hain't no one to be sociable with. Mother, she says, go out on the champs, Elise, and promenade, and I've done it, but some ways it don't reach the spot. I don't seem to get sociable with no one. I've spoke to, maybe through us speaking different languages, and not coming to understanding. I've tried it loud, and I've tried it low and encouraging, but some ways we never seem to get on, and her Miss Dymar wouldn't take no exceptions at me a-dropping in. I feel as if I should be sort of uplifted, if she'd only allow it once a week or even fewer. Monsieur, I replied with warmth, I beg you will consider our salon at your disposal, not once a week, but at all times, and Madame de Marc would certainly join me in the invitation if she were upon the spot. He released the lapel of my coat and grasped my hand, shaking it with fervor. Now that's clever, that is, he said, and it's friendly, and I'm obligated to you. Since he appeared to have nothing further to say, we went downstairs together. At the door we parted. I'm a-goin', he remarked, to the Champs Elysee, to promenade. Where are you a-goin'? To the Boulevard Haussmann, monsieur, to give a lesson, I returned. I will wish you good morning. Good morning, he answered. Bon, reflecting deeply for a moment, bon jour, I'm a-trying to learn it, you see, with a view to being more sociabler. Bonjour. And thus took his departure. After this we saw him frequently. In fact, it became his habit to follow Mademoiselle Esmeralda in all her visits to our apartment. A few minutes after her arrival, we usually heard a timid knock upon the outer door, which proved to emanate from Monsieur, who always entered with a laborious bonjour and always slipped deprecatingly into the least comfortable chair, near the fire, hurriedly concealing his hat beneath it. In him, also, my Clélie became much interested. On my own part, I could not cease to admire the fine feeling and delicate tact she continually exhibited in her manner toward him. In time he even appeared to lose something of his first embarrassment and discomfort, though he was always inclined to a reverent silence in her presence. "'He don't say much, don't father,' said Mademoiselle Esmeralda, with tears in her pretty eyes. "'He's like me, but you don't know what comfort he's taken when he sits and listens and stirs his chocolate round and round without drinking it. "'He doesn't drink it because he ain't used to it, but he likes to have it when we do, because he says it makes him feel sociable. "'He's trying to learn to drink it, too. He practices every day a little at a time.' He was powerful afraid at first that you'd take exceptions to him doing nothing but stir it round. But I told him I knew you wouldn't, for you wasn't that kind. I find him, said Clélie to me, inexpressibly mournful, even though he excites one to smile upon all occasions. Is it not mournful that his very suffering should be absurd? Mon Dieu, he does not wear his clothes, he bears them about with him. He simply carries them. It was about this time that Mademoiselle Esmeralda was rendered doubly unhappy. Since their residence in Paris, Madame had been industriously occupied in making efforts to enter society. She had struggled violently and indefatigably, 
she was at once persistent and ambitious. She had used every means that lay in her power, and, most of all, she had used her money. Naturally, she had found people upon the outskirts of good circles who would accept her with her money. Consequently, she had obtained acquaintances of a class and was bold enough to employ them as stepping-stones. At all events, she began to receive invitations and to discover opportunities to pay visits and to take her daughter with her. Accordingly, Mademoiselle Esmeralda was placed upon exhibition. She was dressed by experienced artistes. She was forced from her seclusion and obliged to drive and call and promenade. Her condition was pitiable. While all this was torture to her inexperience and timidity, her fear of her mother rendered her wholly submissive. Each day brought with it some new trial. She was admired for many reasons, by some for her wealth, of which all had heard rumours, by others for her freshness and beauty. The silence and sensitiveness which arose from shyness, and her ignorance of all social rules, were called naivete and modesty, and people who abhorred her mother not unfrequently were charmed with her, and consequently Madame found her also an instrument of some consequence. In her determination to overcome all obstacles, Madame even condescended to apply to my wife, whose influence over Mademoiselle she was clever enough not to undervalue. "'I want you to talk to Mademoiselle,' she said. "'She thinks a great deal of you, and I want you to give her some good advice. You know what society is, and you know that she ought to be proud of her advantages, and not make a fool of herself. Many a girl would be glad enough of what she has before her.' She's got money, and she's got chances, and I don't begrudge her anything. She can spend all she likes on clothes and things, and I'll take her anywhere if she'll behave herself. They wear me out, her and her father. It's her father that's ruined her, and her living as she's done. Her father never knew anything, and he's made a pet of her, and got her into his way of thinking. It's ridiculous how little ambition they have, and she might marry as well as any girl. There's a marquis that's quite in love with her at this moment, and she's as afraid of him as death, and cries if I even mention him, though he's a nice enough man, if he is a bit elderly. Now I want you to reason with her. This Clélie told me afterward. And upon going away, she ended... She turned round toward me, setting her face into an indescribable expression of hardness and obstinacy. "'I want her to understand,' she said, "'that she's cut off forever from anything that's happened before. There's the Atlantic Ocean and many a mile of land between her and North Carolina, and so she may as well give that up.'" End of Section 10 Read by Tiffany Halla Colonna